and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the deep values of those who shape our common life. It's become a cliche to say we live in divided times, but I think we all feel this sense that it's harder and harder to understand people who aren't like us or who disagree with us, and to get a sense of the perspective of another tribe, except in a really adversarial setting. I started this project because I got quite worried about the ways in which technology and our information environment and our political climate are encouraging us to think other people are not just wrong, but stupid or even evil. I wanted to become, because it doesn't always come naturally, more curious, more empathetic, and ultimately part of the solution, not part of the problem around this issue of rising polarization. And to be honest, before it all sounds a bit too earnest. I'm also just really nosy. I'm really interested in people and how they came to believe what they believe, how they ended up where they are and how they think about how they use their voice. I really love chatting to guests. It's such a privilege that so many have been willing to actually be quite vulnerable, to self-reflect, to share something of their own story, their own hunch about what a good life might be because ultimately, aren't we all pondering at least semi-consciously that question in the background. I've spoken to guests from such a wide range of different professional backgrounds, from every point on the political spectrum, from every set of metaphysical, well, every is probably an overclaim, from many, many points on the political spectrum, from many different um, perspectives on uh, metaphysics, belief, non-belief. And I always come away with my honestly often unlovely prejudices punctured and a deeper sense of the complicated human being in front of me. In this episode, I spoke to Zing Seng, who is the editor of Vice UK, the author of Forgotten Women, uh, which is a book series, four books actually telling stories of, as it says, forgotten women. And she's also the host of the BBC podcast, United Zingdom. We spoke about the legacy of her childhood growing up in Singapore, what role Vice plays in the media landscape now, and the public narratives around East and Southeast Asian or EC identities. There are some reflections from me at the end as usual, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Zing. I am going to not ease you in at all. (laughs) We're going to try and go deep quick, which is always a bit uncomfortable, particularly when we've just woken up or we're just adjusting. So um, please don't worry if it feels awkward. Um, And we can always come back to some of these themes, but I am terrible at small talk. (laughs) Um, And I really love getting, um, creating space for people to self-reflect actually about the principles, the ethical values um, that have shaped their life. And so much of this is often unconscious and we're not encouraged to think about it very much. Um, but you've had a little bit of warning that I would ask you what is sacred to you. And you can really take it in any direction that you like. I hope it's been generative. It's been, something has bubbled up anyway. Where did you start? Mm, yeah, it's, it's, it was difficult actually, because I guess sacred for me always has connotations of religion and mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but basically when I was growing up in Singapore, I inadvertently got sent to quite a religious school. Um, this was, and my mum will fully admit to this, pure laziness on her part. She just picked the closest school possible to where we lived at the time. And it was a really, really 
Presbyterian Christian school. Um, and I would even go as far as to say it was quite fundamentalist, really. Uh, we had a in-house pastor who would preach to us every single morning. We'd start school in the morning singing hymns. Um, in fact, we'd actually blast the Christian hymns out in the very residential neighborhood the school was in, which I feel like at 7 a.m. in the morning is not really what you want to wake up listening to, right? Um, and That's get, not loving your neighbor. It's not really not loving your neighbor. It's definitely not loving your neighbor if they're not a morning person. So we had this pastor, um, we had, you know, regular lessons that were called Christian values. And she talked to us about, you know, what God wanted for us and what was sacred and, you know, what was the Christian thing to do. And a lot of it revolved around uh, converting people and evangelizing. Um, so so 10-year-old me, you know, gets goes, goes to this school and listens to this adult tell you, and in a very sincere, and she fully signed up to it, she really believed that she was like, if you do not convert your family, they are going to burn in hell when the rapture comes which is very Oof. intense for a 10, for, you know, like a nine, 10, 11 year old to listen to, right? When you're very impressionable. So I grew up genuinely believing this stuff um, because I was being taught it in school. And I would And your try, parents weren't, weren't Christians? No, my parents weren't Christian at all. I think in the general, I mean, you could loosely describe them as Taoists. So, you know, Taoism, you have a bit of ancestor worship. You know, we'd go and clean the graves of my grandparents. You know, it was very, you know, loosely culturally Taoist um, in the way that many Singaporeans are. So they had no idea I was being indoctrinated in, at the school at all until I had this conversation with my mum where I sat down and I was like, we are all going to die. We are literally going to go up in flames unless you convert to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to her credit, my mum did not blink at all. Um, and she basically sat me down and was like, okay, so you're saying that unless we convert, we're going to go to hell. And anybody who's not a Christian, no matter what they do, if they don't convert, they are all going to burn in hell. And I was like, yes, yes, that's exactly it. You've absolutely nailed it. Um, and then she goes down this list and it's like, okay, so, you know, by this logic, Mother Teresa, chill, she's going to heaven. She's chill. And I was like, yep, yep. Teresa, you know, she's going to heaven. And then she goes down this list and it's like, okay, what about Gandhi? Gandhi's not Christian, right? So like, does this mean he's going to hell? But didn't he do all this good stuff? And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess by that logic, Gandhi would be in hell. And then she just goes down this list of people who, you know, are genuinely regarded as really good people, but aren't Christian. And then by the end of this conversation, I have been fully de-radicalized. And I was like, completely blown away. I was like, oh yeah. I mean, this is this is just logically inconsistent with what everything everyone's been telling me at school. And actually maybe, maybe what I'm learning in school isn't right. So that to me was kind of one of the, I would say the formative philosophical slash spiritual religious experiences yeah. when I was a child where you know, my mum really calmly, you know, didn't shout at me, didn't make fun of me for, you know, believing these things, even though, you know, I think the sight of 10 year old me frantic with panic that she was going to go to hell um, was probably quite amusing for my mum. She just actually just took me at face value and talked me through it and, you know, explained to me and talked to me and took me seriously and said, you know, by this, by this logic, like all these people, 
would be going to hell. And do you think that's fair? Do you think that's just? Do you think, you know, if there was a supreme being or a God, do you think that's what he would want for people? And that's how people would get rewarded for doing good things in their life. And she kind of just really kind of, I think, I think, yeah, she de-radicalized me in quite like a simple, straightforward way. I mean, I was only 10, but I think yeah. that experience for me was really formative. Mm. Did you stay at the school? So I went there, I finished, I finished primary school, but I left for secondary school, um, which I think to a non-denominational school, which I think was for the best. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I can totally understand why you would have some allergy um, to the, the religious associations of the word sacred. I, I like it if you're able to kind of bracket that stuff out as a way of getting like for religious people, those things might be sacred, but I think everyone has some deep things that if you offered the money to give up, they would feel quite conflicted about or compromised that probably do unconsciously shape our life, whether it's, you know, for some people it's equality, for some people it's nature, for some people it's, you know, lots of these things we don't even know. Um, do, is, there, is there something that kind of plays that role in your life and you don't, please don't use the word sacred if you don't want to, but maybe like deepest principles or kind of guiding, guiding things? Mm, I think treating people with kindness and treating people in good faith is important to me. Um, just because, you know, and going back to the way my mother treated me, you know, she was really kind about it and she was really kind of, she took it in good faith. So I think those have been things that, are really important to me through all my life. Um, and also just to be kind of open-minded. I think that, you know, growing up in Singapore, which, you know, and I don't think, I think things have changed a lot since I left, but growing up in Singapore at the time in, I'm going to say like the nineties and the early two thousands, it was quite a conservative place. Um, and it was pretty homophobic, uh, it was pretty sexist and it was basically almost everything that I don't consider myself now. And I think one of the things that was really formative for me when I was growing up was the homophobia of Singapore. So I'm bisexual and even just being kind of coming to terms of that in Singapore was really, really difficult because it made me the object of gossip and rumor at school. I was bullied because of it. Um, teachers would like allude to it. It was really not very nice to kind Ugh. of have to go through that when you were a teenage girl. Um, and one of the things that I remember most clearly was when I was kind of becoming, I think I must have been like 16 or, seven, 16 or 17, Singapore made this big deal about you know, finally letting people put on a play about homosexuality. Um, and the reason for that is because in Singapore, you have to send all your plays through to the government censors to make sure there isn't anything that could, you know, incite disharmony in the country or something like that. Um, and this play got through and they put it on. And I remember watching it. And for me, it was a really big deal. It was a play about two gay men, you know, not my experience at all, but I was still really excited because I was like, oh my God, this is a play about my community. This is amazing. Um, I'm really into the theatre and the arts and this is so cool. And then I remember going there and then I remember seeing a bunch of, like a couple of guys looking quite 
shady around the public bathrooms in uh, the play, in the theatre. And I turned to a friend and I was like, what's up with these guys? And he was like, oh, they're undercover cops. They're just here to keep an eye on everything. And I was so shocked. And I was actually kind of disgusted, to be honest. I was disgusted at how small-minded the police were to think that a play could have any kind of, I don't know, like what did they think was going to happen? That a bomb was going to go off? Like it just didn't make any sense to me. So one of the things that's been really important to me in all my life is just to be really open-minded about stuff. Because if I'd kind of bought into all of that when I was growing up in Singapore, I would have turned out to be a really unhappy, really closeted, close-minded person. And I cannot imagine the kind of life that alternate reality me would have had. I don't think it would have been a very, very happy one. That's really helpful to get a snapshot of some of the kind of intellectual political air that you that you were breathing as you were growing up. I'd love to hear if it's all right a little bit more about Taoism, about uh, how you think that shaped maybe your family, if at all, and the wider culture. Because it 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 is something I've been reading about, very interested in recently, but didn't don't have lots and lots of knowledge about. Yeah, Taoism is really interesting. I mean, I I feel like you probably intellectually have like read way more about it than I have. But for me growing up, the experience is very much embedded in kind of just like the everyday social fabric of me and my family's lives. So we have, and we still have actually, we still have an altar in our home in Singapore with pictures of my grandparents. Um, We offer them food. So we leave kind of you know, nice plates of food, fruit, bowls of fruit for them. Make sure the altar's always stopped. You know, occasionally we kind of pray to them with joysticks. Um, hilariously, my par- my parents never really told me what to pray, so I would just make it up in my head. Um, hi, Grandma. And, yeah, hi, hi, Grandma. <laughs> Hope you're okay. Um, and uh, every year, so there's um, this kind of celebration called Tingming, which is where you go to the graves of your grandparents or your ancestors and you kind of clean it up. You make sure it's nice. You pull out any weeds, you leave flowers, you leave offerings of food. You kind of like wait around a while. Sometimes you burn um, offerings. So for instance, uh, you might have heard of this thing called hell money, which sounds really ominous, but really it's just like paper, paper cash really that you can burn or, you know, paper joss, um, can't remember what they're called in English, um, but it's basically paper money that you burn uh, in like a tin can or something. And it's meant to kind of go towards your ancestors in, you know, the next life, in their afterlife. So they have a little money to spend in the afterlife. Um, in Hong Kong, you can get really, really elaborate paper offerings to burn. So people um, have burned, you know, I've seen like Armani, paper Armani shirts get burned, paper BMWs, like little ones get burned. Um Paper flats wow. get burned, like miniature flats and apartments get burned. Um, and the idea is when you burn it, it goes to your you know, grandparents or ancestors in the afterlife. Um, and then after that's done, then you kind of give these, I guess you would call them sort of like uh, stone ingots to the youngest person in the family, which is usually me. Um, and then you throw them on the floor and if they come up a certain way, that's the sign that, you know, your ancestors are kind of done with all of this. They're kind of like, they've eaten well, they've got the presents, they're cool. And then you can take the food home and you can eat it yourself. And what happens if they come up a different way? Are they like, nope, that's for me. I'm still hungry. Yeah, you just have to wait around. 
this is a thing. Like eventually you just like end up throwing it on the ground like multiple times trying to like get the right combination so all of you can like go home and eat the food. So interesting. I, and you've painted such a vivid picture of it. Is it, Singapore's quite mixed religiously, right? Obviously you went to a Christian school, there's a Taoism. How, how does that religious diversity show up? Is it quite harmonious? Is there friction? It's really interesting because I think the Singapore government has done a good job of trying to make sure that all these different religious groups and ethnic groups get along. So even in, you know, the pledge for Singapore, which school children have to recite every day in school, you know, it talks about how, you know, we have all these different races and groups living in harmony. Um, there are four main I guess, ethnic groups. So you have Chinese people who are the dominant group and they have the biggest numbers, basically. And then you have Malays who are kind of like indigenous to the region. So, you know, they are kind of, you know, you get Malay people in Malaysia, you get Malay people in Singapore. They're kind of like indigenous people to the region. And you have Indians uh, who migrated over from India to Southeast Asia. And then you have, I guess, (laughs) I guess Singapore, the Singapore government call them other um, we, it's, I guess in the UK, you would call them mixed race. So we call them Eurasian. So they're a mix of kind of like Euro- Europeans and Asian people, kind of mixed race people. Um, and the Singapore government goes to quite a long way to make sure everyone gets along, which is why I think, you know, I was talking about uh, the Singapore government censoring plays and plays having to go through the government for approval. The government's argument is that we have to make sure that every single group gets along. So that's why we have to maintain quite a tight grip on the kind of cultural output of the country to make sure nobody's, you know, accusing the other group of doing something or whatever. Um, I think those years when I was younger were really con- tightly controlled. I think now it's slightly more relaxed, especially with the internet. People have been, people discuss things a lot more openly than they used to. But the Singapore government, still tries to crack down on a lot of freedom of speech. And I think it's really to people's detriment. Yeah. What prompted your move to the UK? I would actually say, my if you ask my parents, they would say, oh, there was better educational opportunities in the UK. Um, but I would actually point to that experience at the theatre as being like the thing that made me go, I don't want to be here anymore. Hmm. Because it made me think, I can't be somewhere where people in authority trust us so little that they feel the need to send undercover police in. And I know, you know, in the UK, if you go to a protest, there's undercover police, you know. It's not something that's unique to Singapore. But I think there was something about the fact that I was so young, so excited to see, you know, my community represented on stage in Singapore in a place where I thought I'd never get to see this happen. Um, and then having that completely crushed by, by the fact that there were cops there, I think that was the thing that pushed me to want to be somewhere else. Yeah. And did you know that journalism, writing and editing was your thing from quite early or was it more of a zigzag path? No, I think it was more of a zigzag path. I'd always been really interested in writing, but mainly more creative writing. Um, And then when I started university, I started doing the student newspaper. But honestly, it was just a bit of a laugh. I mean, I had loads of fun doing it. I made so many friends. Um, And then I think weirdly by third year, I was absolutely desperate for a job. So I started applying to advertising schemes, like advertising grad schemes and got absolutely nowhere. 
um, which is probably for the best um, because I might still be in advertising mm. now if I'd gotten onto one. Um, and then I kind of thought, oh, you know, I, I'd won a prize for um, student media. Um, I'd done an internship as part of that prize. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, I don't really know what to do. Maybe I should just do a master's in journalism. And that was the thing that kind of set me on the path to becoming a journalist. And you had this extraordinary rapid rise to editing Vice UK. I wanted to talk about how you think about your public voice and your public platform and the the influence that uh, people who edit outlets in particular have. Uh, My first question was just, for those who haven't come across Vice, how would you describe it? And I was laughing because you... um, you shared a really funny thing on Instagram from, I think, End of the Road Festival yeah. with the thing that was like <laughs> yeah. tongue-in-cheek descriptions of the different outlets. And it said, Vice, like middle-class public schoolboy explaining street culture or something. And you yeah. were there standing next to it. And <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah. They're a little bit out of date here. Um, but I was trying to think how I would describe it, but I'd love to hear in your words, like what's this kind of tone and position in the, the wider media space? I mean, I would describe it as youth media. Um, I think we are still very much catering for the demographic of people who are in their years at university, in their 20s, in their early 30s, basically people who would self-define as young people. Um, I mean, I still do, even though I'm in my 30s. Uh, when do you have to give that up? I'm not sure I'm ready. I don't, I don't know. I'm Maybe never. Who knows? Maybe we'll be the generation that never gives it up. <laughs> I've started gardening and I feel like that's a death knell. But, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, know, I've started on. gardening as well. But, you know, I'm trying to make that cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so young, so youth media, I think our politics are progressive and left-wing, LGBTQ-friendly, inclusive. We are very much about kind of holding people to account. We are, I'm trying to think of different issues we could like take as, we're very pro-union, so we're very pro kind of like tax to billionaires, you know, give people back power, you know, people's, especially young people's lives are not as good as they could be. And it's because people are trying, you know, people are basically taking away from the state, taking away from society, taking away the opportunities that young people should be having. And I think that's really obvious now when you look at stuff like, oh God, the wind for tax, the lack of a wind for tax, you know, billionaires like Elon Musk and people like that rather would rather be developing (laughs) space stations on Mars than investing in the future of the planet. Um, So yeah, I think that's how you could describe our politics. Um, I think we are very much aware of the fact that a lot of the media does not serve young people. So for instance, you know, you, you see everything about the cost of living crisis happening now in the UK. And what I haven't seen is, you know, an outlet, any outlet besides us start talking, you know, about how this is going to affect young people. You know, why is renting so expensive now? Why can't young people afford to buy their own place? Why is housing impossible? Why can't people find jobs? Why are young people being made to jump through so many hoops just to get a job? You know, I graduated in the last recession and I see a lot of the rumblings of what I and my peers had to go through starting right now. And I think it's probably going to be a lot worse, actually, for people who are leaving university right now. Yeah. And how do you, 
I was reading and enjoying a bunch of stuff in the last few days. But uh, one, I, I, I don't feel sorry for editors in general, but I, I, having led something much, much smaller, I'm aware that you can kind of write and you can build and you build all these great platforms. And uh, there's more freedom, right, when you're a content creator than when the buck stops with you and the whole kind of tone and positioning of the thing um, comes from you. And Vice fascinates me because it's trying to, and is, I think, succeeding often to do really quite hard-hitting news pieces, shining light on injustices or things that need reporting for young people, all very mixed in with, like you did a very funny piece on roasting Carrie and Boris's flat renovation. <laughs> Be like, they paid £3,000 for this. Here it is on Etsy. It's £15. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it feels like Zin just had a day where she was like, I need to write something fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, this is it. I think, I think what I really like about working at Vice is that it's got a sense of humour. You know, yeah, we do a yeah. lot of serious reporting. We do a lot of serious stories. But we also know that people like to have a laugh. And, you know, a lot of the world is very depressing. And if there's a serious story that makes you want to pull your hair out, but you can do it in a funny way. So maybe people, you know, have a bit of a laugh while also getting educated about, you know, just how much Carrie Simmons spent on that wallpaper. Then we're always going to go for that. Because, I mean, to be frank, most of the world is pretty depressing already. Yeah, I think that's what when I was trying to think about it. Uh, that's that what that's what feels quite distinctive. You have basically satire outlets and humor outlets, and then serious news outlets. And Vice seems to me to be trying to do both in a way that's quite unique. Do you, uh, do you come up? Are there tensions? Are there like editorial meetings where you're like, we absolutely can have that story nowhere near anything funny, or kind of mm. vice versa? Yeah, it's funny. I was just discussing this with the freelancer about the cost of living stuff. You know, can we make fun of how awful everything is? Or is that kind of disrespectful to the people who are struggling with their bills at the minute? And I'm kind of like coming up with a balanced kind of viewpoint mm. on it. I think as time goes on, maybe people will start to acclimatize to how expensive everything is and then we can have a bit of a laugh about it but I think right now when you're at the start of the crisis and people are panicking it's not very helpful to go in straight with the kind of satire angle yeah it's a really um it's a difficult needle to thread I think one of the things I've been reading and listening to you talk a lot about is um ESEA identities east and southeast asian identities. Yeah. Um, can you just unpack that acronym a bit for us? So basically, East and Southeast Asian identities, or ESEA or EC for short, is actually, I think, a relatively new term that's become popular over the last few years. And basically, it was kind of in recognition of the fact that when you say Asian in the UK, a lot of people just automatically think of South Asian, when actually there's quite a large ESEA community in the UK. It's relatively spread out. So, you know, even, you know, the oldest Chinatown in the UK, which is in Liverpool, or the biggest Chinatown, which is in London, you know, the communities are relatively small. But, you know, taken together, we're still quite a big minority in the UK. And during COVID, what we saw was an increase in anti-ESEA hate and violence. And I think that what that 
pandemic did, as terrible as it was, it's really galvanized a new generation of ESEA people into kind of thinking about their racial and political identity in a different way, specifically in the UK, because Asian American politics and Asian American identity actually has a really, really long history over in the States. Um, But Asian identity, specifically East and Southeast Asian identity here, there hasn't been, or at least, you know, to my knowledge, and I'm no academic, so, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong. It hasn't had that same history. And not that many people in the diaspora have kind of thought themselves as necessarily all being part of the same community. But I think COVID really brought that to the front, especially if you had that experience of being discriminated against or harassed because of the way you look. It makes you think of your community in a completely different way. And there are so many different kind of ESEA communities in the UK. You know, we have Filipino, we have Filipino communities, we have Chinese communities. Within that community, we have people from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, from mainland China. You have Singaporean Chinese people like me. It's basically huge. And I think what the pandemic really did is it brought a lot of those people from disparate groups together who might have been divided through nationality, through kind of heritage in whatever way. And it brought them together and made them start thinking of themselves as a group because everyone else was thinking of us as a group. Yeah, it is. I mean, the phrase Asian is just so unhelpful, isn't it? Like for how much geographic spread of the globe we are trying to, it's just because it's a bit like the word religion. It becomes sort of almost useless as a descriptor yeah. Yeah. because it's so broad. So it's helpful to have a bit more granularity there. And I'd love to hear a bit more. Um, I was listening to your lecture, Yellow Peril, and I'd love you to say a bit about some of the tropes, stereotypes, narratives that have been used and used against often ESEA people and, and, and where you see that showing up in um, in the media that we consume? Oh, so many. I guess one, so one of the things I always talk about is the way Eastern Southeast Asian women are portrayed in film and TV and the media. So it's often really sexual. It's really objectified. And this kind of shows up in different ways. So you have, you know, the women who are kind of tiger moms. They're really aggressive. Um they are really overtly sexual. And I don't know if you watched that new Netflix show, Sandman? I didn't. So there's one episode where that takes place in a diner and it's kind of a prism of society. And then a guy comes in and he's got this magical object that makes everyone stop lying and do what they really want to do with their lives. And there's only one, to my knowledge, there's only one East or Southeast Asian actress in the whole show. And she turns up in that episode as a really high-flying tiger mom type CEO, really high-powered, classic trope. And then she turns into this really sexually aggressive woman who goes after um, this younger man. And again, this kind of falls into this trope of the hyper-aggressive, hyper-sexual dragon lady. You know, she's kind of powerful. Mm. She's aggressive. She's scary. She's like overly sexual. Um, And then the flip side of that is that you have this kind of wilting lotus blossom kind of flower woman who's really submissive, who's really shy and meek, who's, you know, who falls in love so quickly and so dramatically. And then she always does something dramatic to kind of show that she loves, you know, whoever she's fallen for. You see this trope happening in something like Memoirs of a Geisha in Madame Butterfly. It's really, really uh, a decades old sexual trope. And they're kind of 
two sides of the same coin. You know, either way, no matter who she is, the Asian woman ends up being objectified and sexualized. She she isn't seen as someone with her own mind or her own desires. She's only ever positioned in relation to who wants her, who wants to have sex with her, who does she want to have sex with, who does she want to be with? And that's really limiting. And that's, you know, that's classic objectification. What do you think shows up in the way we portray Eastern Southeast Asian men? So the classic stereotype for Eastern Southeast Asian men is that they are hyper-emasculated. So they're kind of these dorky nords. (laughs) They're kind of these like nerdish guys who are really good at, you know, science or maths, but they are hopeless around women and they're really socially awkward and are never, ever successful with girls. So that's kind of almost the flip side of that, of the uh, female trope, really. And it's really interesting Mm. because if you look back at history, especially in the UK, in the early part of the 20th century, there were quite a few kind of Chinese sailors who came over to the UK and settled down with white women. And there was this whole kind of yellow peril panic in the press about it. And, you know, journalists were writing stuff like, you know, these women who shacked up with these quote unquote oriental men, they started looking older, they started looking, you know, aged, you know, they started even looking a little bit Chinese themselves. And it was this whole kind of panic around the kind of sexual prowess of Chinese men. Yeah, it was almost like, it was almost like the stereotype or the cliche or the stereotype or the trope of the emasculated sexless Asian man emerged as a result of trying to control this idea that, you know, all these kind of South East and Southeast Asian men coming into the UK and taking these white women were somehow more successful than white men in the UK at getting women. It's really interesting. Mm. And, and, you know, I've done a bit of reading around it. I would love to read more. There's not, I mean, there is some academic writing about it, but I honestly think that the tropes that have come up in response to East and Southeast Asian people are really fascinating. And they're not really kind of dealt with in the same way that we might you know, point out as racist a trope about any other ethnicity. Yeah. As an editor, I'm just trying to work out how to frame this because all of the language is so loaded and I don't even know how to describe the kind of crazy knot we seem to have got ourselves in. But I want the, I want to talk about kind of identity politics as a shorthand. This this increased space that has been created over the last, I'd say particularly five years, to talk about how group identities interact, these kind of stereotypes, some of the challenges that people from different groups face in society um, around race, around gender. And you've written about feminism, you're bisexual. There's loads of ways this this crosses over. And I know that Vice is really comfortable with um, creating platforms for a wide range of voices Where do you think we are with that in society, given there is also a lot of people who feel worried about the direction of travel or feel like things can go too far with focusing too much on group identities, the war on woke, you know, that kind of backlash type response. What do you think is going on? Do you feel broadly hopeful that we're moving in the right direction? Do you think there are some problems with the way some of this works? I mean, I feel broadly hopeful, I think. I think the next challenge for us, you know, the big us society, the world, whatever, is to 
start looking at ways in which we can build bridges between people. Um, and I mean that in the sense of, you know, what I find most heartening happening now is if you look at the world of work, you see a lot of people starting to set up unions. You start to see people, you know, places like Amazon, like Starbucks start unionizing and a union by default. And I, you know, I, I was a union rep myself at Vice until um, I couldn't sadly no longer be, yeah, until I became the editor and I sadly couldn't be part of it anymore. Um, and I know from my experience being a union rep is that a union is a really unique thing in that it necessarily has to draw from a huge group of people. Yeah, you all work in the same company, but you might not have that many things in common, you know, on paper. And then you all have to kind of reach a consensus on what to do, whether that consensus is, okay, like as a big group, we're going to let, you know, the organizing committee handle this thing, but we're going to like ask for a vote on this other thing. We're going to treat management a certain way. I think that what has been really helpful, especially with my experience in unionizing, I'd never, ever done it before, is that it made me really hopeful about the kind of things you can do when you all decide to make an effort to build bridges with each other and to take something on that seems insurmountable. How easy do you think it is? I'm thinking of something like Community Organizing, Citizens UK, which has um, done a lot of that, bringing people together from different institutions and organizations, um, around a common purpose, around a common problem. But because they are bringing people together who are so different, it might be the local mosque and the local church and the local school and, you know, institute, institutions that don't themselves have anything in common, bringing together people who might actually have very quite deep, deep and painful disagreements on things like gender or on their politics, for example. They have had to develop practices to help people just be like, Yes, this person might disagree with you on gender. Yes, this person might actually have a real problem with your religion, might have a real problem with your sexual orientation. These things that are so like really hard to tolerate difference around. How do you, do you have a sense of how unions, or I guess more, this is again, I'm asking you to fix the world, a collectively society, what are the things that can help us go, yes, this is important to me. Yes, I think you're deeply, deeply wrong. And... I'm going to work with you or I'm going to live beside you or I'm going to build a society with you without feeling like you are, you are just beyond the pale. Like I can't, I can't, you are, you are a group that I can't be anywhere close to. I think honestly, it comes down to personal judgment. You know, I can't sit here and tell people the most important thing that you have to disagree with someone on is X because that's completely subjective to someone's own personal experience and their upbringing. You know, I know what mine are, you know, you probably know what yours are, but I think everyone when they engage in kind of communal politics like that has to kind of make a judgment call on what those things are most important to them for. What those, everyone when they engage in community politics has to in some way sit down and decide what are the things that are most important to them? What are the things that they will not compromise on? So, you know, if it's, if you're, if you are in a union, for instance, maybe the thing that you will absolutely not compromise on is giving up someone's, and then this is a US example, I guess, giving up the right to someone's like health insurance and being like, okay, well, I don't really need, you know, I'm relatively young and healthy, but 
my belief is that every single person in this company should have full coverage health insurance. And I'm not willing to sit in a negotiating table with an, with management and say, oh yeah, in order to get this one thing, yeah, we'll give up health insurance, you know, because it won't affect me and I'll be fine. So I think that's the kind of thing that's really difficult, right? I think that's the fundamental problem with politics now. And it's, you know, you could argue that's the fundamental problem with something like the Labour Party now, because they feel like they have to stand for everything and they have to please everyone and therefore they end up pleasing nobody whereas I feel like the conservatives are actually very good well I would think until recently are very good at keeping internal disagreements under the surface and never letting it leak out um and that's why they've been so good at holding on to power but I think that's one of the main problems of politics and I think it kind of boils down to people actually have to figure out what is most important to them. What are they not willing to compromise on? Who are they not willing to get in bed with? Hmm. What have you learned maybe as a union rep, maybe as an editor, maybe as someone of ESEA descent navigating some of the prejudices um, around that? What have you learned about what helps us navigate these moments of deep disagreement, these deep divides, these, these, rising divisions is there anything that you've been like yeah that helps us that helps us keep seeing each other as human that helps us stay in the room that helps us be part of the problem uh, be part of the solution not part of the problem with growing division I think there's I mean it's my firm belief that no matter how different people are you'll always find at least one thing you can empathize with or sympathize with or agree on, no matter how different you are. And I think part of that is because, you know, Singapore is not a very big country. Not a lot of people can even point it out on a map. Um, Not a lot of people know anything about it. And because of that, I've had to approach a lot of people from the perspective of they don't know anything about me or where I'm from, why I speak a certain way, why I might know who Mr. Bean is, but have no idea who Mr. Blobby is. You know, that was my experience when I first came to this country. Um, And I think that by necessity meant that I had to get very good at speaking to people who on face value, I had absolutely nothing in common with. Coming to the UK was such a huge culture shock because, you know, as amazing as all your films and TV shows are, they don't really communicate a lot of what the UK is actually about to people who didn't grow up here. So when I came here, the drinking culture was a huge shock. The culture around like taking the piss and it's a loving way of showing that you're affectionate with someone. That was a huge shock. I turned up and I genuinely thought everyone was horrible and hated each other. And that was why they were so horrible to each other all the time. So I think my experience is that no matter how different you may initially seem to each other, there's always at least one thing that you can either sympathize or empathize with, if not like outright agree on. And I think that's been really helpful in meeting people. And also, you know, in my job, I've had to speak with a lot of people who I have absolutely nothing in common with, whose lives have been so different from me, but I've always been able to find at least one way in to kind of making them understand what I'm about. And so I can understand what they're about. You know, I had one interview where I interviewed someone who was a gang member who had attacked a woman with acid. That was, you know, in you know, I think a lot of people came up to me afterwards after seeing that and they were like, that must have been so scary. You must have been like terrified. And to be honest, at the time, I wasn't scared at all because before we went on camera and we did the interview, I was talking to him about, you know, growing up around East London, which is where I live. And he was like, well, you know, I got found with a knife, which meant I went to, 
I went to prison for possession. When I came out, I couldn't find a job. You know, even Tesco didn't want me. And, you know, I had to make money. I didn't want to rely on my mum. And so I joined a gang and I started dealing drugs. And I was like, you know what? This is not, I have never experienced anything like this in my life. But I know the feeling of not wanting to let my mum down and not wanting to disappoint her, not wanting to be a burden. So I kind of know what you're about. And that's kind of how you just kind of, you know, build connections with people. You can see, meet someone who on paper might seem, you know, the last person you want to have a conversation with. But if you talk to them, you can always find something to chat about. I mean, that's kind of my firm belief. It's probably how, what a lot of journalists think, to be honest. That's why we're in this job. Yeah. Sing Sing, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really valued someone who has never been to Singapore or doesn't really have anyone close to me who grew up in Singapore. That little snapshot, that little sense of Sing's childhood in Singapore and, and how it's formed term, particularly that kind of thread of a kind of authoritarianism. An authoritarianism designed, at least in theory, to kind of keep the peace, to keep the peace between different groups, to, to not allow polarization or conflict to build, but obviously with um, some really negative consequences as well, which I think Zing might say has really shaped her politics now, has been part of how she's uh, ended up as the woman that she is. And obviously there's a kind of echo of that in the school that she went to that it sounds like was her experience of it was as quite dogmatic um, and that lovely um, kind of parenting moment with her mother feeling really kind of heard but not shamed was um, a really kind of personal detail. I really enjoyed the little insight into um, it's confusingly often, um, so Taoism and Taoism are functionally kind of referring to the same cluster of beliefs and practices, but they're sometimes spelt with a T, sometimes with a D, sometimes said with a T with a T and not always matching up. Some people write them with one letter and it sounds like the other when they say it. And um, that took me a little um, beat to work out when I first started reading around this. Um, but it's just a kind of lovely and obviously very funny anecdote of uh, a family um, practicing uh, that. And I can just imagine Young Sing's kind of uh, impatience while also really wanting to honor her ancestors. And that final thing on Singapore is this sense of what do you do about diversity? I didn't get a chance to speak to Singapore about it very much, but I was reading that there's quite a lot of kind of, well, there certainly has been quite a lot of kind of underlying tensions between um, Chinese Singaporeans, Malaysian Singaporeans, that there's a strong Christian community and a strong Buddhist community and um, a Taoist community. And that it's, it is very peaceful in one sense, but possibly peaceful in a in um, as a consequence of the government being um, extremely careful about what's allowed to be said in public. And it was a new thought for me that actually there might be such a thing as too much peace or too much harmony. There might actually diverse societies societies where people believe and belong and behave differently from each other, which fundamentally is all societies, although in some the differences are more obvious, um, that actually there naturally probably does need to be a bit of fractiousness, a bit of um, noisiness, a bit of rubbing each other's corners off, as long as there's enough freedom for people to express their particular culture or religion 
and enough shared institutions and shared stake in a common life to kind of hold the thing together. Um, I really, um, it left me think, this conversation left me thinking a lot about East and Southeast Asian identities, EC identities, which is this new acronym um, to kind of complicate this badge, Asian, which has been a descriptor for people with heritage in such a vast geographical swathe of the earth that it does become kind of not massively useful. And um, this is a hugely lowbrow reference. That's all right. I am quite lowbrow. Um, it was making me think about pitch perfect, which I will defend to uh, the death as a kind of masterpiece of uplifting a cappella um, college film nonsense, bubblegum goodness, but which I rewatched recently. And it was, it's, it's very stark about how much we've changed and how much has moved on positively in terms of representation, because it's just sort of painfully stereotyped in the characters in a whole range of areas. But the EC, the Eastern Southeast Asian um, identity character is a member of the a cappella group who is uh, female. And so, uh, so hard are they playing on this stereotype that's being mentioned that she just, she is so meek and demure that you can't hear what she's saying. And the camera cuts to her and she kind of mutters under her breath and none of the other characters can ever hear what she's saying because she is, as Singh says, this kind of wilting lotus blossom, passive, quiet, kind of... Um, bland character, really, that doesn't really ever, uh, as a kind of gag at the end where it turns out she's got this incredibly low, powerful singing voice. But um, that was what was coming to mind when Zing was talking about that stereotype. And I hope after this conversation, I will be a bit more alert to those kind of um, tropes that we see. And hopefully through Zing's work and others, we'll begin to see more complicated characters, more, um, more diversity of stories told, um, as we reflect the kind of complex human lives and characters of those who happen to come from that part of the world or whose ancestors did. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred Podcast. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Our production team are Daniel Turner and Lizzie Harvey, and our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find all about our work on theosthinktank.co.uk. And I would love to hear from you. I get a chance to reflect out loud at the end of the episode, but if you have thoughts that this conversation provoked, things that you really agreed with, things that you massively disagreed with, guest suggestions, please do get in touch. Our email address and all our social handles are readily available in the show notes. Until next time.